Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We know a lot about politicians and their role in social change. But what about public servants? In democratic countries, legions of public servants write policy and legislation and implement decisions made by government with some level of independence. In what ways are these public servants changemakers themselves? Today's Changemaker Chat is with Peter Shergold. Peter joined the public service in the 1980s under the Labor government of Bob Hawke, and eventually became the most senior public servant in the country, the Secretary of Prime Minister and Cabinet, under the Conservative Prime Minister, John Howard. He explores the possibilities and challenges that come from making change in the public service. We talk about the importance of a political antenna alongside a nonpartisan outlook, about the role of change and the power of nuance and listening. He provides some advice for how not-for-profits can think about how advocacy can include the public service. At the end, he makes it all practical, running us through what might be happening right now in Canberra as they work out how to support the new Albanese government following through on stopping the climate wars. This one's packed full of insights. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. You can find us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. Hello, Peter Shergold. Welcome to Changemakers. Thank you so much. It's delightful to have you with us. We're going to learn so much about so many things today, I am very sure. But the first thing I was uh, hoping that you could let our listeners know is we always ask our our guests, what kind of change maker are you? How would you answer that question? Well, you know, for the 1960s, I did weird things at university because I did uh, politics and American studies. And to be truthful, it is because even then, really what interested me, what pressed my hot buttons, was public policy. And it's been so for the rest of my life. Now, I reckon there are three ways you can try and influence public policy, make changes. The one is, of course, to get elected to parliaments or councils. I've got to be honest, I've never joined a political party and I've never seriously contemplated that because, you know, even from my teens to now my range of political views are pretty Catholic and complex, and I could just tell they weren't going to fit 
neatly in any political party. The second way, of course, is to advocate from the outside, either individually or join a community organisation, give your voice from business. Importantly, try and influence policy on the basis of evidence from universities, from academia. And in fact, I've done all of those things at various times. And I think that's really important. In fact, I get a bit tired of being told we've got to educate people for the future labour market, which I agree with. But in my view, it's equally important to educate people to become active citizens, to engage. So I've done that. But the third way, of course, is to become a public servant. And uh, very unexpectedly, after 16 years as what I like to think was a a real academic at the Uni of New South Wales, uh, I got the chance under uh, Bob Bob Hawke to go into um, the public service and to establish this new uh, thing, this new agency called the Office of Multicultural Affairs. I thought I'd go for two or three years, a bit like a, a study leave, and I found that I really liked it from the inside. And if it's, it's, it's pros and cons. You know, outside you can be much clearer. You're not constrained. You can say exactly what you want to say publicly. Inside, I found I could have more influence without my views being intermediated. And at least for that 20 years, I was happy to work within the constraints of public service and the confidentiality of public service. Excellent. So you're a change maker on the road path three, right? The, the yeah, public right. service, yeah. for the yeah. public service route. And we are going to spend the most of the talk talking about that form of change making. And I how... think that's really important because my view is public service is actually increasingly misunderstood in Australia. I think it's fundamental to democratic governance, which is under attack. I think it's fundamental to making change. But in my view, it's become even harder since I left as a public servant. Obviously, because you left, right, Peter? No, <laughs> <laughs> no yeah, there's a whole lot of reasons. Or, or, or we'll some other it. things in yeah, the world, yeah, right? Yeah, Maybe, right. I don't know. So let's, let's just unpack... So with knowing that the theme is going to be about the public service, yeah. I actually want to – you gave us a little bit of, a, of a, a sense of a few of the key beats of your life story, right, about your, your time at university and then your shift into, into the public service. Can we just go th- – dig into that in a little bit more detail? I'm interested in, in why you were interested in taking up this call of public service, public action in the first place and where that came from. So, well, at uni – Uh, I came here and I was teaching economic history, initially American economic history, but then increasingly because I was here, uh, Australian economic history. And I had a particular interest in uh, labour and migration history. Where did that come from for you? Uh, Well, it really came from when I was doing my PhD at the School of Economics. And uh, my PhD was on working class life. And I was interested in understanding why socialism had failed to take root in the late 19th, early 20th century in the United States compared with Britain. And so I did a study, a comparative study, looking at uh, Pittsburgh in the United States and Birmingham and Sheffield in England. So that's where I started from. And increasingly I could see I used wonderful resources, migrant records in the United States. And now this is how I got into public policy. So in Australia, I became frustrated that migrant groups, particularly those who'd been coming since the 1920s, 
were not saving their records. I remember, you know, going for lunch from the Union New South Wales down to the Castelritzen Club, which is just down at the bottom in Kingsford. And there was this wonderful leather volume which was holding open a door. And I was curious, picked it up, and it was the records of the first Castelritzens to come here from the 1920s. And it was being used as a doorstop wow. into the pokies. And so that convinced me to try and work. So I started to work with the Ethnic Communities Council, really with the intention... Can I just... just, I want to drill on this. So a lack of data collection drew you into a relationship with the migrant communities of of New South Wales. That's right. That's a a pretty spectacular... It is. It is is coming from (laughs) that because um, I looked at that volume and I thought, oh, I think... So because migrant groups have been caught so up in the process, they haven't collected their records. And right now, no uni or library is doing so in a serious way. So that's when I started to work with the Ethnic Communities Council, getting them to collect their records. So I came in from that route. And then I gradually got more and more engaged as they started to lobby on issues of migration and multiculturalism. And so in this, I mean, I, what I'm imagining is that you could, you already knew that there was a power that came from data analysis, from academic analysis when it came to being able to craft government policies. And the fact that there wasn't that data was contributed to a lack of power for those migrant communities. I mean, what, what was the, the sort of brainwave that made you recognise that that needed to be fixed? Well, I was an economic historian and you may remember the big debate from the middle of 1980s when Geoffrey Blaney, a historian I much admire, came out and said we were taking too many Asian migrants, that in his view it was threatening the social cohesion of Australian society and something that got picked up by John Howard as a a politician. And so I started to get involved with the Ethnic Communities Council Uh, co-edited a little book on the great immigration uh, debate. And so I'd started alongside my academic life being involved much more in public policy. But to be honest with you, they they didn't really fit, you know, that what I was doing as community engagement was, of course, based upon my skills at looking at data and analysis and synthesis, et cetera, et cetera. But it was a different world. And then what happened... Bob Hawke brought down, I think it was in 1987, a budget which seemed to attack many of the ethnic communities that had been Labour supporters. They brought down a budget in which SBS was cut, adult migrant education was cut, they abolished the Australian Institute of Multicultural Affairs and so on. Now, knowing now what I know about the public service, this I don't think was some great conspiracy to knock off multiculturalism. It was a complete cock-up when each department was asked to make last-minute savings for the budget. And guess what? They all chose the areas that they thought were at the fringe of their department. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So I got involved. I, I uh, In Carnivale in New South Wales with some colleagues, we carried the coffin of multiculturalism through the streets dressed as uh, undertakers. A photo, which I think it was the Sydney Morning Herald, faithfully saved for um, uh, some 20 years later 
when I became secretary of John Howard's department. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> but out of that, what happened, to finish the story, Bob Hawke realised, I've got to do something here. He decided he set, needed to set up an office of multicultural affairs and I was approached and was interviewed and took the job and it was the change of my, well, one significant change in my life. Yep. And so you, you, you walk into, into the public service having been a, a beautifully nerdy academic. You're now, you're now in charge of stuff, right? You've been yeah. complaining on the outside, right, about yeah. a lack of data, but also the sort of the bemoaning of the collapse of uh, funding for multiculturalism. You're now in charge of that space. How, how is that world different to what you'd been used to? I had no idea how different it was going to be. And it really made me understand that... Everybody thinks everybody else has accents, but not yourself. And so I hadn't realised that I had imbued deeply of academic culture. And I thought I hadn't really, I thought I knew I'd have to learn about you know, public service structures. I was appointed as a first assistant secretary. I didn't have a clue really what, <laughs> was that like a senior lecturer? What, what, did, <laughs> what did that mean? You know? But in my first couple of weeks, I suddenly read, I thought this was amazing. I came into the public service and I didn't know much, but I would have meetings with the public servants who had been engaged to initially support me in this new role and they agreed with everything. I'd come from an academic life where everything, because I was a head of a department, everything was disagreed. You know, these ferocious fights about who was going to teach first year. Yeah, everything was you know, contested. contested. <laughs> I suddenly get, and everybody's agreeing with me. It took me a few weeks to realise that with the public servants, you have to listen to what happens after the but. So the response would be, that's a great idea. That's a great idea, Dr. Shergold. And that's what I'd heard. But then very subtly there would be, but have you considered? And it took me some time to discover this was a different world. And, uh, I was so, so lucky because I joined the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet under one of the greatest leaders I've ever worked for as a secretary, uh, Mike Codd, who knew I was wet behind the ears as a public servant, but I think appreciated that I was bringing into his department skills and knowledge that no one else had and that he was very happy to help me, mentor me, get me so I could actually be uh, an effective public servant. And so this is not some space that you hung out with for in for, you know, five minutes and then left. I mean, this has really become the most important part of your career. How did being a public servant, how did becoming being a, the most senior public servant in the country, how did it shape who you were? How did it allow you to, you know, enact the values that you said you had from, from early on in your life to, to serve? Well, as you probably gathered, you know, I can talk under wet cement <laughs> and my whole way of operating, I think, uh, initially, was when I had views on something, I discussed them and openly. And so suddenly going into an environment where confidentiality was important, uh, subtlety was important, I had to do a lot of learning. I can remember going into meetings with colleagues where I'd have my writing pad. They didn't know, but the only word I had on it was listen, because... I'd worked in an academic environment and you fight ideas out. And I think it's still roughly the same, but it was certainly true in the, the 70s that in a way it didn't matter if you were 
the distinguished professor or a young lecturer, when it came to academic issues, there was still a level playing field in you know, having intellectual debate. I went, of course, into a public servants where seniority was slowly disappearing, but it was a much more hierarchical structure. So my difficulty was as a sort of a bright middle-aged thing, I would be tending to leap at answers before I'd listened. And I needed to listen because my first answers could often be improved by listening to others, and sometimes they were just dead wrong. But more than that, I realised it was important to do it so that people had skin in the game. They felt they had ownership of the decisions we came to. And that was very important because, you know, I was lucky. Maybe I wouldn't have stayed in the public service. But when I came in, I was asked, well, what are you going to do? I didn't know. I was going to head the Office of Multicultural Affairs. But at that stage, the Office of Status of Women were preparing a report on the status of women. And I thought, well, that seems like a good idea. And so that was the creation of the national agenda for a multicultural Australia, which I think has and has remained pretty influential in articulating multicultural policies. And so working with that with the Hawke government was my indication that behind the scenes you could really influence things, you could make change, in my view, quite big change in positive ways. And that then convinced me that rather than returning to academic life, I could find much more fulfilment as a change maker within the public service. Wonderful. And we are now going to we're going to talk a lot about the different places that you've played roles as a change maker. But what I want to pick up on is that you, you just described the importance of process, right? The role of listening and engagement um, being so, so important in the process of change making in the public service. And I, I guess I want you to, to tell us more about that, maybe with some more of some other examples from other roles that you played, like of describing. So tell us about how you make change as a public servant. How does that change process occur? And I'm I'm keen for you to let us know what we didn't learn from Yes Minister. Okay. Well, the real problem is that Yes Minister is probably the best guide to the public service Ah. compared with most academic books. I get really (laughs) frustrated when I look, for example, how Australian politics 101 is taught. And, you know, you talked about the constitution, government, parliament, separation of powers, the judiciary, even, you know, the important role of the fourth estate. Try and see there the fundamental importance of a professional public service to the making of demo- and retaining of democratic governance. It's too often lost. And so the first thing you have to learn as a public service is why you are so important. You are there, at least under the Westminster system, to be apolitical, not non-political. In fact, if you're non-political, you'll probably be a pretty hopeless senior public servant. You've got to understand the political context in which you're working. But apolitical and non-partisan, that's misunderstood. So what that means, I think, is if you go in as a public servant, and you need to think this before you do, is you are going to be willing to serve successive ministers, successive prime ministers, successive governments with equal commitment. It's not for everyone. When I was in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commissions, ATSIC, which uh, I had the honour to be CEO of for a while, that was really tough to some really great Aboriginal public servants I had working there because with some of them I had to have a really difficult conversation 
You can be within the public service, try and work on this confidential basis, influence behind the scenes, or you can go outside and advocate at full throttle, but you can't do both. It's really difficult. Now, so I think the first thing you understand as a public servant is that's the change that you have the opportunity to make. So you do understand, obviously, the mandate that a government or a, uh, a minister has. Then I think you seek to work within that. You try, I would always try, to present evidence-based policy. The truth is it would often become policy-based evidence, by which I mean that too often the government would make a decision and you were sent in search of the evidence which sustained it. But I'd always try and present the evidence. But, you know, you need as much emotional intelligence as intellectual intelligence. I would always try and see what it is, what are the hot buttons on the minister I'm serving? What is the language I can couch things in? So so you're needing a really sophisticated political antenna to Well, let me... So I talked about the national agenda for multicultural affairs at one end of my career. Let's come right to the end of my career in 2007 because it really relates to what was my greatest public service achievement which turned out into my greatest public service disaster. So it's towards the end of John Howard's final term. I and other senior public servants have become increasingly of the view that the position that the coalition was taking on climate change was really not sustainable. And indeed, I had become increasing aware of changes in mood, both from farmers who were facing drought and from the Business Council of Australia. So, you know, I was able to influence the Prime Minister, to his great credit, to set up a task group on emissions trading. Now, let me say I was given a pretty poor set of cards in that the Prime Minister did this to let me look at emissions trading, but within constraints, and he gave me not just a few secretaries to work with, but he gave me business leaders from the coal industry, the aluminium industry, the airline industry, banking, resources and power. And yet, I was working with that group, able to get a consensus that we needed to introduce an emissions trading scheme, which you may remember in the dying days of the Howard government got accepted. Yep. And in fact, John Howard made that commitment Very that briefly. an ETS yep. would be there in 2012. And of course, the great disappointment is that then for a whole series of political reasons that followed, it collapsed and we still don't, we still don't have that ETS. Now, the reason I mention this is if I had been at that stage the secretary in Kevin Rudd's Department. I would have probably argued along similar lines, but I would have couched it as he did in, you know, the greatest moral challenge of the 21st century. That's not going to wash with a coalition government. Okay. So the way I would try and do it in order to bring about change was to argue it on the basis of the government that I was serving, which was, look, we don't, all your, some of your cabinet believe in climate change. There are others who are great sceptics. In a sense, that doesn't matter. All we know here is that there is a risk. And this is a risk like any other political risk. And what governments do is try and manage that 
government risk. And how do you want to manage it? You want to manage it at lowest cost. What is the lowest cost? Set an emissions trading scheme up where the market actually drives the technology change. So it was very much, uh, in a sense, an economic argument about this, uh, of why we should make ch uh, change domestically and then to give us a greater voice internationally. And so it was, it's not being, as some of my academic colleagues tended to think, being chameleon-like. It is actually trying to couch arguments, not by changing them, but couch them in a way that appeals to the political mandate that is being set by the government of the day. Yeah, so you're sitting inside the frame or narrative yeah. that... The, the, of, the, of the elected representatives, because you're, 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 you're not an elected representative. You're, That's you're right. a servant of that And space. you've always got to think, I am not an elected. At the end of the day, governments, ministers, cabinet, collectively have to make decisions. People would say to me sometimes, so you put forward a view to your minister and he knocks it back. Do you go forward again to try and argue again? And I'd have to say, all I would try and do is be confident that the minister, cabinet, the prime minister made their decision with eyes wide open. If I've done that, in a way I've done my job. I've said, these are the risks attached financially, socially, economically. These are the risks involved um, that you have to take. There are other ways that you might achieve this that might be uh, better. Uh, have you thought about how difficult it is to, going to be uh, deliver? Um, and of course, I would think in my head, I wonder how the minister's going to take this through the party room. But essentially, I was trying to make sure that whatever happened in the party room, it was, to the best of my ability, an informed discussion. And so... I, I do want to drill into this question a little bit more, Peter, because it is of great interest that you work, worked as a senior, senior, senior public servant for the Hawke government and then as the most senior, the Secretary of Prime Minister and Cabinet for the Howard government. Now, you know, some people would think, how could he do that? You know, what was he thinking to be able to to be able to move across such very different political representatives, despite what you're saying about being able to move and work under different uh, political narratives and political umbrellas. Can you tell us a little bit more about why, when you went into that role, right, why you thought it was possible to do and, and, how, and how you did manage it and whether you found challenges in, in, in managing those um, very different roles? There were times that I faced challenges which only occasionally made me think, is it time to leave? Um, having been there at the establishment of ATSIC, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, and having initially persuaded the Howard government when it came in to retain that body, I then actually got involved or had to, was, had to give advice on the end on how to abolish ATSIC. Wow. That's tough. That's tough. So that was one area. The other, I think, was in the area of immigration and refugees, where that was, you know, challenging. It was made easier for me because... And just, just yeah. for our international audience, I mean, the, the, the Howard government had some pretty difficult policies around refugee rights. They, no, they really did. Um, and they took up a very tough approach uh, to border control, essentially saying that if you had 
come to this country, quote, illegally, then you would have no expectation that you would ever be able to settle here. Now, that was tough. I suppose, I don't know whether this is a weakness or a strength. It's certainly a strength as a public servant. I've always, on just about anything, been able to see both sides of an argument. It doesn't mean that I'm agnostic, but I can at least understand. So I could at least understand what was the public policy basis of that policy, which was that a government that didn't seem to control its borders on immigration would lose support for immigration. We've got to remember that whilst Howard was introducing those very tough policies on refugee arrivals that I was personally very uncomfortable with, um, that nevertheless we probably had the largest immigration intake <laughs> ever. Uh, and so I understood the argument. I suppose, but you've got to understand public servants do many things. Though. So, of course, government was taking those views on refugees. In the meantime, of course, there were voices within the government, uh, Petro Giorgio, mm. okay, as, as an example, and Kuyong, um, <laughs> who had those liberal views in the group. And in fact, because, because the Prime Minister knew about my, my <laughs> clearly knew about my background, uh, then I would often get sent to be the intermediary or the interlocutor between that small group of real liberals on the liberal end and himself. Can to, I, did you feel used? Do you think he no, used you? Well, used, yes, but used in a good way. I was happy to play that role because it did mean that some of those voices were not just at the margins, but I could capture some of what they were arguing in the internal uh, advice mm-hmm. that I provided. So, look... So you, everything you, could be an opportunity. Everything, th- look... If you saw it and, that way. And... and and you've got to have a medium term here. Look, when I came to PMNC, there had been an earlier attempt to change government policy, I think led by David Kemp. Um, David Kemp, I'm just trying to... Anyway, there had been a previous attempt to get the government to consider whether it would change its policy in a significant way on climate change, Kyoto Agreement, and so on. And that had failed. I waited three years... Uh, talking about this with Ken Henry and Secretary and Treasury, Jill, we thought, actually, this is actually the right time at which government now needs to reconsider its position. So part of it also, you you try and wait till there's opportunities. Now, I keep emphasising, this is genuinely not for, for anyone. I mean, these are tough decisions. In my view, why it's become so important is, in a way, what you're becoming is a steward for democratic governance. You know, you at the very... So some of the people, did you ever say no to ministers? And my argument was, well, on public policy terms... You said blah, 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 but... But, (laughs) But, yes, there are times when a public servant should say no. And you should say no to a minister when you can see that there is a breach of integrity, um, something that's being done which is not in accordance with the law, or parliamentary convention. So at times, you do have to say no. When I was secretary of the uh, Department of Employment, I had the job as secretary to make the decisions on the second contract for the job network. 
and I did it very thoroughly, sitting alongside a probity advisor, an outside probity advisor, throughout to make these difficult decisions on which companies, for-profit, not-for-profit, were going to win the contracts. But essentially, it was myself as a public servant who had been asked to do that. Now, someone in a minister in government was a bit uncomfortable with some of those decisions and was saying, well, can't we moderate the decision? Maybe we can do it over a couple of contracts. And it was a tough discussion to say, Minister, you could have made this decision, but that was not how you set this up. It was set up under direction that I, your secretary, would make this. There is no further question here. And so the minister in question had to live with the results. It was a perfectly fair question, but there are times then you have to say, no, this is, this is the appropriate way with integrity to make the decision. I think sometimes, and one of the things we're struggling with now is you know, public servants who are trying to give the best advice on how to make community grants, for example, and um, see their advice being overruled. Well, sure, overrule it, but then you've got to say why you're overruling it, I think. Yeah, and it makes uh, – it makes. It, firstly, it makes me think, gosh, a federal ICAC sounds like a useful space to be able to, to, to be able to enforce some of the inappropriate ideas. But second, it also – I feel like what you're describing is – what you said at the beginning, the the democratic role of a public service, that, you know, you don't have endless scope for action when you're a servant of elected politicians, but the executive's capacity to to, to make decisions, to provide evidence, to, to undertake its role, that's real, right? Yeah. If we didn't, if we had a fully politicised public service, we would be in a far more dangerous and difficult place. It's, we would. Yeah. So, look, I always took a degree of pride that when policies were announced, people in the media really didn't know what my view would be. Now, they'd sometimes assume I was a great supporter because my view was you argue, and you really argue, robustly, strongly, in confidence with your minister to get them to see. But my view is also of a public service, this non-partisan public service, is that once the government had made its decision, then I was going to be Mr. Can-do. I was going to do my absolute best, whatever I thought of that policy, to make sure that it was implemented to government and public expectations. So that is also quite difficult, you know, because sometimes, on occasions, I would be implementing policies that were not the ones that I would have chosen if I had that. Why I think it's become so much harder is that if I'd been talking to you, I think a generation ago, you might not have liked the job I did as a public servant, but you would have understood it. I think with social media, it's becoming increasingly hard to understand that group of senior public servants who think they can serve successive governments equally. Because what's happening with social media, of course, is that increasingly, because of your own choice or because of unseen algorithms... Social media is deciding what are the voices you want to see or listen to. You know, my advice to public servants is always, well, this was a few years ago, the first thing you do on social media is subscribe to The Guardian and you subscribe to the Donald Trump tweets because it will confuse the media and at least you'll still get 
a variety of views. Um, my worry is that, and I think it is a worry in this present election, is people are becoming increasingly demarcated. And my worry is almost a hollowing out of political debate, political decision-making. And that, uh, I think, is advert... And that makes it, I think, harder for public servants because their role, frankly, gets harder to understand in a world which increasingly thinks, there's, what's your position yeah. on this, you know? And I think it's also, I think it can be difficult for people who, who are new to political action to be, able to, to be able to really conceive of this somewhat, you know, behind the scenes mysterious role of public servants. Yeah. I'm wondering if, you know, we've got lots of people listening to this program who are involved in social activism, some of whom are very experienced and have worked with public servants to prosecute political ideas and others whom maybe have had less experience with that but have, are involved in public debate. You know, when you reflect on this, the roles and your understanding of how public service works and the timeliness and sometimes slowness of political opportunities, which I think is really interesting, you know, what, you know, have you got, have you got advice or thoughts from those in the advocacy space in, in Channel B as opposed yes. to your Channel C of how they can be more effective in their, in their engagement around social change given the role of public servants, making it now I mean, have a better sense of how they work? Well, there are certain political advocacy organisations that are put to one side, which are necessarily, you know, associated with certain political views. But take the great bulk of not-for-profit civil society organisations. Yeah, I think I do have some advice, but it's advice from being on the inside of what worked for me and what gave those organisations, I think, significant power. The first is whatever you do, wherever you really stand, at least multi-partisan in your approach. Because ministers, prime ministers, premiers, governments will change. And it is important that you try to the best you can to work across politics. And that's just not the major parties. I'm talking about working with minor parties, independents, uh, about your views. Because in the way our federal politics is changing, and most of our state politics is changing... You know, minor parties, at least in the Senate, will be, or the upper house, will become important. So my view is try and have a policy. Again, know what is likely to appeal to different political persuasions, but couch your arguments to them. The second thing is be very clear about when you're going to go public and when you argue confidentially. Work that out in advance. And my view is one of the best things you can do is sometimes in confidential discussion with ministers, be very clear, this is a line-in-the-sand issue for us, minister. If your government was to do this, then we would have no alternative but to come out publicly against it. Alternatively, if you were to do this, we will give our assurance, we will come out and you know, with statements of support. But be very clear, the worst organisations that I've worked with. In fact, they were largely business organisations, sometimes, or, or professional advocacy organisations. There were a couple I can remember that I thought were stupid in the extreme because they would say one thing in the private meeting and then go out and there would be a microphone in front of them and they would say quite different from what they'd said in the room. You've got to, it's got to be a consistent message and clear 
whether you're going to be individual, whether you're going to join with others, when you're going to be public, when you're private. Last thing I'd say is build your relationships with public servants. I can't believe how few people, how few organisations do that effectively. And yet those public servants, those senior public servants, are likely to be significantly longer than the governments they serve. And what do I mean work with them? As a public servant, my view is that a public servant today does not want to have a monopoly on the advice that goes to ministers. I think they should facilitate the situation for ministers so they can hear a diversity of voices and then you overlay it with your public service uh, advice. So I think that's really extraordinarily important. And so as an outside organisation, I would always like those community organisations, those business organisations, those academics I worked with, who would build up relationship over time, give me advice on things, put their views, would talk to me as well as my minister or prime minister, you know, and, and both of us would know they were speaking to each other. And so I can then build as a public service a relationship of confidence. And I know that the discussions we're going to have are never going to breach confidentiality, that we can be open. That, I think, really helps the civil society organisations to have greater impact politically. Too often, I think, they think that because they've got a good relationship, as they see it, with a particular minister, they're home and hosed. All my, all my experience tells me that public policy doesn't work like that. It's so interesting. So people, listen, broad-based political party relationships consistency and a lot of relationships, particularly with those in the public service making decisions on behalf of ministers, for ministers in, in making the work happen, are going to be an incredibly important part of, of, of being effective in relationship with politics. What you need is what happened with me sometimes where I would pick up the phone and talk to a community leader or a business leader and be able to say, look, I'm working on this. I got no information. Have you got any information? And of course, if that organisation can then provide it and help me, it established that relationship in terms then of what that organisation is advocating for. Yeah. And I think a lot of people think of that as a political, as something, a relationship with MPs, with men, members of parliament. But actually what you're saying is there's lots and lots of decision making that goes on to make policy, to make politics and advocacy organisations yeah, would be man to not. Ministers, they're ministerial advisors and they're senior public servants. And if you can work with all three, yep. you're going to be more effective. Excellent. That's really helpful. So here's my final question, right? So we've, we're not long past a, a very important uh, federal election in, in Australia. We've had uh, a new uh, prime minister elected. And one of the things he said was that he wants to end the climate wars. Now, as someone who helped, tried to help John Howard um, get ahead of the climate wars, didn't mm. work out so well in the end, I guess I wonder, as if, if you were working as the secretary of the of, of prime minister in cabinet, what, what, what would you be talking to our new prime minister about? What would you be thinking and doing if you were going to end the climate wars? So, of course, the first thing, if I was still Secretary of PMNC, I would have been with the Prime Minister and his handpicked team as soon as possible. A bit challenging because, of course, the Prime Minister, for perfectly appropriate reasons, has had to go overseas for, uh, for a few days on a very important uh, visit. But um, 
I would have my red and blue book. So I would have in front of the Prime Minister and every department for their ministers, you know, what you've got to do in this next 100 days, which is things you've got to attend, decisions you've got to make, and then a collection of everything I know that you have said is your policy collected over the last six months and with an articulation, if that is your view, this is how you would do it. Preferably, in my briefs for incoming governments, you may think about other ways. You've suggested this, but there may be this other way. You can do this. So it would be responsive to what I've seen is the agenda. That would be the first thing. But on this, this is where I think a good public servant has got to show that most difficult of leadership, this facilitative leadership. The temptation of a public servant, you know, is to think, I want to have the only way through to the ear of the minister. No, no. The best thing you can do as a public servant is to give them a view on well, what different key organisations are saying. Where is the, the Greens? Where are the independents coming from on this? What are the points where there might be agreement on climate change? At, then, at the end of the day, you've got to make these political decisions on who you want to consult with and what sort of coalitions or you want to establish. But let me as a public servant say... From what I can see of what's been said, these are the points where there's agreement, disagreement that you could... In other words, I'm trying to provide a brief to my minister or the prime minister which suggests here at least is a starting base for you to consider in how to achieve what you want to do and the time frame. That is how I would do it. The other thing is on many of these issues, where I think governments too often they come out second best against the private sector, is often they'll want to go and design a policy, often behind closed doors, and then announce it and roll it out nationally across the state. We saw it in the home insulation scheme. We saw it with robo-debt. What a complete nonsense. So all I can say is that if I was a public servant on issues like that, I would be saying... Let's pause, not pause, but let's take three months. Let's try this in different areas and maybe try it in different ways with full support and identify what the problems are. If it's a fail, probably robo-debt was a fail, but if it is, let's fail quickly. Um, if it needs to be adapted, home insulation scheme clearly needs to be adapted, let's adapt. What we too often do is design a policy, announce it, and then try to roll it out. My view is we've got to think about doing it in a much more strategic way, being willing to trial things. We know so much about behavioural science now. Let's use some of that behavioural science. Let's find out how citizens react in, in whether it's in the way that we expect it. So that would be my second message to government. On some of these issues, start early, but we're willing to fail fast on a minor scale before you make the big decision. Let's actually learn not just from, if you like, a, an academic exercise of, of evidence, but let's trial some of these on the basis of evidence and see what works and what doesn't. Excellent. Oh, Peter, I wish you were there helping <laughs> them all. Let's, let's, let's see what happens. But it sounds like that is a huge insight for those who are interested in that issue of working on the climate climate agenda right now where there seems to be an opportunity. Peter, I want to thank you for coming in and talking to us all, schooling us on the public service and also your fantastic story. Thank you so much for the opportunity. 
Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all of our episodes. Changemakers is produced by Lachlan Hodson. Our audio producer is Jules Walker. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.